Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? I am so good. I just yeah. had some donut and coffee. Donut and coffee. At 2.30 in the afternoon. All right. Yes, I'm doing great. Sugar and caffeine. I'm ready to You're go. You're going to be fired up for this, baby. Oh, I am. I All am. right. Hey, how was your week? That's what I want to know. Your day sounds awesome. Has your week been equally awesome? It was a good week. Uh, weekend, uh, the wife decided it was time to do yard work all day on Saturday, and 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 praise the Lord, it was the coolest day so far. So uh, yes, uh, by the end of the day, I, we were both tired, but it was a, a wonderful weekend. So I love yard work. I love yards. Do you want to come to my house then? You, you got money? Me? I don't do it for free. Oh, well, of course I have money. All right, then let's talk after this. We don't need to be doing deals here. <laughs> okay. All right, I want to tell you about my week. I had a huge, huge breakthrough on the personal front. Now, let me ask you something. Are you familiar with the 1980 comedy hit Caddyshack? Of course. <laughs> you know, the Bill Murray. Oh, one of the best movies Chevy Chase ever thing. made. Do you remember the, the, the groundhog plot line? Well, Obviously, right? Kill, yeah, yeah. Kill all the golfers. If we kill all the golfers, they're going to put us in jail. For the sake of this conversation, we're going to call that thing a groundhog. Now, I, as we've mentioned on this podcast, I like doing a little hunting, a little fishing. In fact, a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing. I haven't talked a lot about gardening, but me my family and I are big gardeners. We try to produce as much of our own stuff as we can. One of the things we try to produce is sweet potatoes, and the bane of my sweet potato crop this year has been said groundhog. And I've been fighting this groundhog, not unlike Chevy Chase fought that groundhog, all summer long. But something happened yesterday to change this calculation. Yes. I caught that groundhog. You caught it? I caught it. How? In a trap. Oh, okay. Groundhog is gone. You didn't like get out there he's with not a crossbow gone. or something. No, and, no. no. I, well, I didn't have to. He was in a trap. But he's now in my refrigerator. And I look forward to next week explaining to the audience if, in fact, groundhog tastes like chicken. Yeah. Or I, I understand it might taste like rabbit. So we'll find that out. And that's what we have to look forward to. Next time. Groundhog burgers. I can't wait. <laughs> we'll see how. The, we're we're going to actually braise them. We're going to cook them in a very classy oh, way. Wow. Because despite, I'm, I'm old school American class. When I kill a groundhog, I braise it. I cook it in butter the way a sophisticated American revolutionary would. Wow. All right. That's awesome. All right. Now to our housekeeping. First, our email address, thepowerhour at heritage.org. Shoot me an email. I'm dying to hear what you all think, how you think we're doing, what should we cover, what have we covered too much of? Let me know. I don't know unless you tell me what you're thinking. Again, that email address is thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, John, can you tell folks, how do they find us? Just look up the Power Hour Heritage at Heritage Explains. I'm sorry, Her Heard on Heritage. They can uh, also look up Her Heritage, Heritage Explains. Yeah, I'm sorry. Cross, cross motion there. Um, and check out the Kevin Roberts Show, too, when you're checking out your podcast. So just look up. The Power Hour Heritage, and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe and share, and please send Jack in your favorite recipes for groundhog. <laughs> yes, please do. 
I hope I don't have to do this again. Although maybe I'll hope I will Now, John, here comes the part where I always get a little excited. My voice gets loud. The adjectives start flowing a little bit. The list of accolades begin to build. I mean, we get CEOs, intellectuals, and even the occasional government type in here. I get excited because I can hardly believe that these folks take time out of their day to come chat with us. And we really get the best people. So how are we going to keep this streak going, John? I don't know how. I'll tell you how. <laughs> Our audience knows what we think, or at least I'll just speak for myself, what I think of politicians, bureaucrats, special interests, and those D.C. busybodies who want to use their power to control our lives. I don't like them. John, you don't like them. Oh, I hate them. There you go. There are just too many liars and charlatans in this city. The primary spectrum of character in D.C., I would argue, lies between ignorance and deceit. But every once in a while, you come across someone that is equal parts, authentic, principled, and ambitious. And I mean that in the best possible way. You know, a lot of people don't like this word ambitious. They're squishy lefties, I think. Um, sometimes, somehow, all the parts fall together. Fate, if you will, puts this person in the right position at the right time. That is who we have here today. Now, why am I excited to speak with him? I'll tell you why. He questions the status quo. He respects precedent, but doesn't allow it to define his future. He understands the danger of a powerful elite to a free citizenry. He has none of these things for the sake of just being contrarian, or because it's easy, or because it's fun, though I suspect it might be sometimes. <laughs> he has each of these things because they are marks of leadership, and in America right now, that's exactly what we need. He's an independent-minded guy. Whether it was being fed up with the education system and founding the John Paul the Great Academy, a K-12 Catholic school, rejecting federal aid as the president of Wyoming Catholic College, where I might mention the New York Times referenced him and his posse as cowboy Catholics, bringing the policy fight directly to Washington, D.C. as the CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, a state-based think tank, mind you, but understanding to protect the state and its interests with a big expanse of government, you got to come to Washington, or taking the reins of the world's best biggest and baddest think tank as president and saying, look, you guys are all awesome. I bring nothing but respect for what you've accomplished, but we can do better. Let's ask questions of ourselves. Let's critique ourselves. Let's keep what works, but scrap what doesn't. And then let's go take this country of ours back. Oh, and by the way, he likes to hunt and fish. That's why I'm excited to introduce to our power, power our audience, Dr. Kevin Roberts, President of the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Roberts, welcome to the Power Hour. Jack, I, I don't know how I'll ever match your energy. I'm just glad that you didn't say what I thought you were going to say, which is that I was equal parts ignorant and equal part deceit. No. no. Which I wouldn't put past you because we have this wonderful friendship where we you know, kind of joke with one another. I would not, I would not do that um, because it's not true. Thank you. It's, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned authentic, authentic in here, but from the, you know, for folks that don't know, I, I, I'm now in this position. I used to have a different position at Heritage. I used to be in management. And I got to meet Dr. Roberts a few times before he took over as president. And I really felt like we, we, we kind of hit it off at the very beginning. And um, I like to feel like I'm authentic. I, I think that's a fair <laughs> statement. You are. And I, I, for whatever it is, I could tell from our, our very first meeting that this guy is authentic. 
I believe what he says, and it makes me want to follow where he's going to take us. And that just doesn't happen. Like, I, I hate to say it, but I've been in the city for almost 25 years now. And there just aren't people like that around. So anyway, that's where that that's that. Well, thanks. We we I will say and I include John, your producer in this heritage is filled with a bunch of authentic people. And I think while yeah. we understand we're imperfect, sometimes we don't always get it right, that our authenticity also breeds intellectual honesty, yes. which you, my friend, are a master of intellectual <laughs> honesty. I, I do my best. With a certain tinge of brazenness sometimes about it, which is what I love about you. For better or for worse, yeah. It's all for better. Jack, you're truly one of a kind. I think that's the, the way I got to put it. All right, yeah, that can be good or bad, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I want to hear about your summer. Let's. We're going to get into the policy stuff. This is, after all, an energy and environment podcast. We're going to get into that. But just how, how has your summer gone? Well, thanks for asking. It's been a terrific summer. The, the right balance of productivity at work, you know, even though – Members of the Senate don't necessarily believe in working too hard, or at least most of them don't. We've been hard, busy at work here at Heritage, but also in a lot of state capitals. But because this was our, our first full summer in the D.C. area, we had moved up last year, but kind of going back and forth to Texas, we were able to take some time off. And, and as you know, one of the things I preach at Heritage is I expect you to work hard. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I'm working hard with you but also expect you to play hard. And so we've been able to do some some hard playing, if you will, go into our happy place, or one of them, which is Wyoming, where we got to ride some horses and catch some fish. It uh, wasn't hunting season, so we didn't do that, but we'll be hunting very soon. It's so that all time of, that, of year. It is that time <laughs> of year. And and to, to uh, John's comment about it being relatively cool on Saturday, not only is that evidence of there not being climate change, <laughs> but it's also evidence that uh, fall is almost here and yeah. uh, we're, we're getting the— the guns and the crossbows and the fishing reels ready. But to clarify, even if it happens to be a warm weekend, that still isn't uh, evidence of yes. climate change. Yeah. Even, like our, our daughter is in, in, in Texas, and she called me yesterday and said, Dad, it's 108 degrees in Dallas. And I waited a beat thinking, is she going to remember? And I know it's not climate change. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I have, a, I have a 14-year-old daughter who we have these sorts of conversations all the time. And um, though... I believe she is. I know she is on the right track. You know, she says some weird things sometimes, but thank God, because um, I want her to be independent-minded as well. That's exactly so, right. It's a sign of an independent thinker. Yeah, exactly. Um, we also, um, we took a, 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 a an RV trip and spent a little time in Wyoming and, and out west, and it just, it reminded me, and I'm going to come back to this in our discussion, because I want to talk later on about some conservation issues and the role of government in that, but it reminded me of... The, how beautiful this country is, first of all. And I spend so much time, probably too much time, maybe not too much time, maybe not enough time on this podcast just railing against government because it does nothing right, certainly in this area. Going through the national parks, I had to be like, they're actually running these okay. It seemed to me that, um, you know, that the, the national park system, um, at least where I, where I went, was reasonable. I want to come back to some of that later on, but that was my, that was. I agree with that, by the way. I know we're going to talk about it later, but, and I I share your skepticism of government, (laughs) including government-owned lands. It's part of the Wyoming DNA in me. But uh, when it really comes to the parks, I think it's, um, they've become a unique source of civic pride at a time now when there isn't a lot of social cohesiveness. And that's up to individuals and communities. That's not government's job. But if government were going to play a role there, I think the national parks probably a pretty good way yeah. they can do it. Yeah, I and agree. And if they're well run, then that's even better. One, one of the prob- one of the problems though is, and we just saw this unfold, is that sometimes our pride in national parks is taken advantage of by government 
to advance its agenda. You just saw this with the Grand Canyon National Monument, which if you would hear Biden and those who support that talk, it seems as if people want to start mining uranium in, in the Grand Canyon. And that's just not true. Like the, the, the National Monument is outside of the 1.2 million acres that is the Grand Canyon National Park. And it's well beyond, like it's not, we never have to worry about going to the Grand Canyon and seeing a, a, um, a uranium mine pit. Yet they use that pride that we have in our national parks um, to advance what is clearly a, an anti-energy agenda. It, it's, it's obvious. And look, our uh, number two child in, in our brood of four is 18, conservative. He was, he was well-raised. He's an independent <laughs> thinker. He said, oh, I know what they're up to. I said, well, what would that be? He said, oh, they're just trying to make it hard to build more nuclear power plants. Yeah. I said, wow, that's really astute. <laughs> yeah. And I said the second thing to, to my son, I said, as much as I love the national parks and I do, we ought to be really skeptical about adding new ones. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the size of our country has not changed much since right. for several decades. It seems as if we've known for a long time what's special and right. what to preserve. And so basically any time you hear especially a left-of-center presidential administration adding federal land – you can almost guarantee that there's some terrible agenda behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw this whole 30 by 30 agenda that's being driven by the left, which is just expanding the federal estate. And now West, geez, the federal government already owns almost everything. And so um, that's that, that. Though there are so many issues that we as a nation have to address and the size of the so-called federal state, that land that's owned by the government government. Might not seem to be a top-notch issue. I would argue it, it, it at least has to be part of that conversation because it's through that land ownership that the government is able to exude so much power over what we do. And on its face, it only seems now as if it is things like, um, like energy development, drilling oil. What I think people don't recognize is how expansive that can become, especially when you start, it, already it is what it is, when you start adding in things like these so-called conservation easements, where in deep in the regulation, not the headline, deep in the regulation, it says, oh, and by the way, we can exclude any use if any use at all gets in the way of our conservation goals. So that means the public access for hunting and fishing, the very things that many people, you know, the, some of the biggest supporters of public land are hunters and fishermen. And one of my so, – so that is true. It's also true that there's a decades-long movement to continuously whittle away hunters and fisher – hunting and fishing rights. And I am very fearful that that ultimately will translate into wide bands that no one could have ever expected on federal lands. And that's why we need to be skeptical of these sorts of things, even as conservationists who support – access, who, who want to maximize support to land for Americans. You, you said that better than I could, and I really do mean that, but I want to respond in a couple of ways to underscore the point, because I agree with everything you said. While I agree that it's a proper role of the federal government and state governments and local governments on a very limited basis to set aside public land for the, the common good, it's a proper use of the phrase common good, <laughs> That what my experience in Wyoming in particular showed that when it came to especially fishing and then to a lesser extent hunting, but that's getting worse now, 
the restrictions on those federally managed lands were too great, that if you were on state managed land, you could trust the state of Wyoming to make good decisions mm -hmm. about balancing those interests. Why is that? because they're closer to us. They, they are of us. But let's not kid ourselves and say that every state official is you know, pure as the wind-driven snow when it comes to this. But the point is the trend, in the, direction, the trend is in the direction of making it harder for hunters and fishermen to be there. I encountered that a few weeks ago when we were in Teton County, 97% of which is federally owned. Mm -hmm. Very beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we've, we've been able to manage a lot of that beauty. But the flip side of that is I was on the board of a private school there for six years, and we could not build a private school because of the conservation easements. Mm -hmm. So that was the conservation <laughs> easements mm -hmm. coming to say, ultimately, this is a school of faith, and we get to regulate you out of existence. Yeah. We went to the Wyoming legislature and got the state to override that. But mm -hmm. this is what we're up against. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, that, that's a great real-world example of, of it. I was looking at it in the future, but it's happening now. It is. And and I didn't, I, when we were in Wyoming, there were people predicting that it was going to get worse. And I believe them with, with mm -hmm. good reason. But in the intervening several years, it's happening. Yeah. It's one of the things in public policy that I, it's so, it's hard to engage on when people say, oh, you're just worried about the slippery slope. You're paranoid or whatever. It's, and, and it's hard to be in that dynamic and to look not like a crazy person when, in fact, you're not the crazy person. Like, we see it all the time. The trajectory has been set. We are not—the the, the country's trajectory is not one towards what the founders envisioned for this country. We're not on a trajectory to more freedom, more ability for American families and businesses to determine our own future, to pursue our own happiness. It's just the opposite, and for— People to characterize those of us who fight for those ideals as being um, conspiratorial or like you know trying to literally gaslighting us is um, something that that we you know heritage has always fought back on. Um, I know you've always fought back on, but it does seem like there's this growing movement by bipart not by part uh, bipartisan's a bad word because party just is irrelevant right now. Seems that uh, way. Yeah, but um, ideologically connecting uh, interests that haven't traditionally been connecting. And I think that's a really, by the way, this conversation is not going anything like I had anticipated. I, I told you but, when I sat down, I'm happy to follow your lead, but it's interesting where we're going. But, it, you know, connecting these things that um, are these people and interests that you just wouldn't have seen before. It's disorienting uh, yeah. sometimes. Like the, I don't know if you follow um, the Russell Brand and, and Tucker Carlson Friendship, fascinating. Yeah, throwing some RFK in there, and all of these mix mixes and matches, and then um, not get. I, I don't want to get into any names because as soon as you start naming names, I thought uh, we we're going to start talking about COVID vaccine mandates. Oh man, <laughs> there's a trigger. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I mean that's that's what's driving this. I, I mean, uh, that's what's driving these interests together, and it and it had. <laughs> We usually save this for the dark web. I didn't know that I was going to um, have to record hours. Mr. Spencer, we have entered the dark web. <laughs> That's what's exposed it all. And here's an analogy we've talked a little bit about here, but I'd like to explore with you more while we're doing it. Climate change is the perfect analogy where you have experts telling you one thing. Your eyes tell you another thing else. You're not allowed to question what the experts say. And, and you must comply. And if you don't, then we will take away your freedom. And the difference is, is that COVID 
happened on a time frame, and I'm holding my hands right now about three inches apart, whereas climate change is much longer. Therefore, it allows that frog to sit in the water longer. Right, and, and the temperature, which will eventually get the, the water to boiling, is a lot lower, yeah. and so you don't feel it quite right. as much. And it, it's so sinister because at the root of climate change mythology is a hatred for humanity. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it, 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 it's, it's philosophical origins. You know, I'm a historian, so I got I to gotta play one a little <laughs> bit for a minute. Its philosophical origins are directly rooted in Malthusian overpopulation myth nonsense. And if, if people start looking at most climate change rhetoric through that lens and you go down like one level beneath the rhetoric that you might see on most news channels, that's really what it is. Yeah. And when you challenge some of them, now they basically say that explicitly. Yeah. The good news, though, is you have the emergence of some people who had traditionally been on the left who are now questioning it. And they were, uh, to use the most triggering term of all time, awoken by COVID and that experience. In an which, appropriate way. In, in, in the most appropriate possible way. And, um, and that's all good. You know, that, that, um, that gives us hope and allows those of us who are optimistic to be so in a not naive way, I would argue. Yeah, that's, that, that's well said. And ultimately, while I worry deeply about the vast majority of American K-12 students and college students facing the indoctrination on climate change, for example, I'm often faced with questions by friends of heritage, elected officials, supporters, otherwise, how can we combat that? Just read at home. Yeah. Whether it's, it's heritage work, thankfully the work of a lot of other organizations, and don't become a victim to the bias of the news. So it's one thing to complain about the bias in the news and know that it's there. It's an entirely different thing to subject you, yourself and your loved ones to that pain night after yeah. night after night. Change your news sources. Yeah. That alone is, is almost sufficient to turn the corner on this. Witness, for example, the success thus far of RFK's presidential run. You know, largely on some other issues, but the point is American people are thumbing their noses yeah. on the left, the right, and the center at what are the traditional sources of media. We have to have that self-governance, too. I mean, that's the yeah. whole point of this project right. in America is that self-governance. That, I, I would say, sort of begins with the news we choose to consume and the news we yeah. choose not to consume. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would say that um, the, the success of RFK is manifesting self as different issues, but it's about the same issue. Oh, I agree. At, at its core. Yeah. And, at its core. He, and, and he might say it a little bit different way, yeah. but at its core, he's put his thumb on it. Right. And that's where my optimism comes from. Not from RFK necessarily. Thank but you from for the, that clarification. <laughs> from, from a broadening questioning of the establishment. And Which so, is just so glorious. It is. It is part of so who good. we are as Americans. Yeah. Even the most buttoned-down establishmenty founder would have given us a high five yeah. for this. Yeah, I agree. But it, America won't come back on its own. We we can't rest on Russell Brand sounding like a conservative all of a sudden and assume everyone's going to become a conservative. We all need to work really hard to move this forward, and that's what makes heritage so great. Um, and conservatives, I think, are moving that needle for sure. I think so. And and what I've seen in, in my little under two years here at Heritage is Heritage doesn't just talk about 
the problems and just doesn't just propose the solutions as if the solutions are going to exist in the vacuum. But we stitch together those solutions into a plan for, as I like to say, taking back America, reclaiming our institutions. It isn't just federal policy and state policy. It's as important as we've known in the in the five decades heritage has been around revitalizing the institutions where we, we, we get to not only just mediate differences, but more importantly, we actually get to build on truths. And the most important truth that our founders would say animated their work and motivated why they did what they do is self-governance. To the extent they, they were motivated to build, quote unquote, structure new institutions, it was just enough of that for the excesses of self-governance, which we might call crime, to be harnessed and that the best of our passions, which is most of our motivation as humans, could animate our community and therefore crowd out the need for government. Mm -hmm. And so conversely, in this era that we've been in, especially since the 1930s, particularly since the 1960s, where government has gotten so big, it isn't just that it's more expensive, that's bad, it's that it's crowded out those institutions. Mm -hmm. And so to come full circle in this response, heritage exists not just for the policy steps to get us there, but to remind Americans that to live the good life should include fishing and hunting. But even if you're not fishing and hunting, it's about living out your life in communities of your choice, institutions of your choice, whatever they may be, because you are in a very simple and profound way exhibiting self-governance. Right. Very well said. And I will never be able to repeat that. So it, it just Louisiana public schools. Luckily for you, we are recording this. Excellent. <laughs> Let me, I want to go back to what where I originally saw this conversation beginning, you know, sort of the structure, because I want people to understand who who uh, Kevin Roberts is a little bit. Um, now, this is an energy and environment podcast, and I know energy is important to you. You're not you. I, of course, I would have invited you here because. <laughs> You kind of have to, right? Right. I mean, we had this conversation, plus you're the president of the Heritage Foundation. But that's not only the real reason why is because I know you have an interest in energy. You have a history in energy. You've grown up around energy. You, I've heard you talk about two places sort of as home, home bases. One is uh, Louisiana, Lafayette, and one is Texas. Both big energy places. So could you tell me and the listeners a little bit about your – your history, your roots in energy. Sure. Yeah, they're very deep and, and proudly so. I grew up in a mostly working class family in South Louisiana, the heart of Cajun country, which was impoverished, which is to say just agrarian. I mean, not even agriculture. So it was impoverished by choice until the discovery of oil in southwest Louisiana in Jennings near my hometown. And my grandfather, who is a native Cajun French speaker, eighth grade education, perfectly smart man, but he had to go work in cotton fields at his uncle's farm, became a roughneck. It changed his life for the better. A Marine Corps World War II veteran. He was probably going to be an auto mechanic working for someone else his entire life. He would have been happy with that because of the nature of his culture. But he told me, he, he helped raise me, that working in the oil patch, even the difficulty of, because he lived about 40 miles inland, hitchhiking down to the coast to catch the boat, out to the rig, being gone from his family. He and my grandmother had four kids. Obviously, my mom was one of them, at the oldest. That that difficulty of being away from his family, he and his wife, my grandmother, knew this was the best job you could ever have. And so when, with my heritage hat on, although I'll come back and mention a couple of other aspects of growing up that make energy important to me, 
I travel around Texas and deal with a lot of white collar people. I really connect very naturally with the blue collar people because in them I see my grandfather, I see my uncle, I see my cousins, I see friends who could have gone on to graduate education, but not just the living, like the income of working in the oil field, but the quality of life and the mission of it, of using hydrocarbons to lift a billion people or more out of poverty since I've been alive. That's, my grandfather would say he played no role in that. It's minuscule, right? But that's what he understood, mm -hmm. that this improved his quality of life as an employee. But what they were, what they were trying to extract from the ground, from the ocean surface, was something that would lead to prosperity. And so fast forward, I became president of the college Republicans at my college. I know that's a surprise to you. <laughs> and it was the time that President George H.W. Bush, himself a great famed oil man, was signing the energy bill. You and I would both love the Department of Energy not to exist. But I was president of the college Republicans. I was on the volunteer advance team, and I was able to meet him there. And it, that was the connection to me between our local, almost kind of isolated area, the Cajun country in Louisiana was that way until recently, to policy in D.C. And while I chose the path of, of studying history, very many times I almost switched to being a petroleum engineer. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's how close mm -hmm. energy was to me and, or geology. And I was out in Midland, Texas to, to wrap up on this response last week. When I was growing up, that was the twin city to Lafayette, Louisiana, my mm -hmm. hometown. You, you had your international headquarters in Houston, which was roughly equidistant between the two towns, and then your base of operations. On the one hand, for Midland, the Permian Basin, and then offshore Lafayette, people live those three places, including a lot of people I'm related to, my wife's uncle, my, my father-in-law. Um, all of that to say, that's changed. And it's changed not just because of voluntary decisions that, that owners of capital are free to make, but it's changed because of regulation. Mm -hmm. And it's changed even beyond the excesses of regulation because of the nefarious, the truly evil mission of the climate change myth. Mm -hmm. And now when I visit my hometown or I visit the, the outer counties of the, the Permian Basin or even parts of Houston, we have robbed ourselves of that prosperity. And it's tragic. Yeah. As you were speaking on that, I was um, I thought about your experience growing up and your comfortness with blue collar folks. You wear a white collar, but you're and I thought, I think that's why we get along so well. I'm the same exact way. You are. And I'm happy to rub shoulders with whoever. You but I'm a, well. I, I'm a I'm a blue collar guy. And um and I grew up in a similar way. Now, I didn't realize it at the time, but where I grew up in a town called Mount Savage, Maryland, which was an old coal mining town and had been prosperous before I was ever there. And I didn't, you know, when you're young, everything seems normal. You don't recognize the poverty or even alcoholism that can take over towns, things like that, as anything other than normal. It's just like, and everything's fun and good. As you get older and you look back, you realize what you were experiencing and how that influenced you to become who you are. And that um, very much... What happened to Mount Savage in that whole area of, of Appalachia was they, they were prosperous because of coal mining and what it does to a town when it goes away. Now, like you said, some of that's because people move capital, but some of it's not. And one of the things that I learned 
looking over the years. I didn't just come up with this just now. I hadn't thought about this before. Not only does it demonstrate um, what happens to a town when whether capital moves for legitimate reasons or is forced out because of bad policy, the, uh, the impact of when government comes in and tries to fix it. That has been a huge problem throughout Appalachia. And I grew up in it. And it kept, you know, when I go back back to, to, to there, the, 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 the roots of that exist today. Um, now, it makes for some of the greatest people in the world. Like, I love the people in that part of the world, in my hometown and all that. But they probably would have been great even if they had prosperity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And because so, of, because of the culture, and yeah. especially there in, in in your home neck of the woods, generations, if not centuries, of 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 that culture. This this is one of the many things that makes America great. Yeah. So anyway, it's interesting how we all get to where we are, and and how um, people innately sort of recognize in in one another. Sort of, hey, we share sensibility, and we see that amongst you know. In all sorts of of interpersonal interactions. No, it's true, and I'll just quickly add on to that. I'm, uh, you don't know this. I don't think too many people at Heritage do yet. I'm I'm writing a book about why we fight, and it's all to to celebrate Heritage's work, but the, also the heritage, small age heritage, of Americans. And as I was writing the introduction, the first chapter, I realized how important energy was, like the 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 oil field in particular. And, and therefore, I thought about the oil crash of the 1980s, which just devastated my town. It, it, it just as a, as a city, it barely survived. It almost had to declare bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and this will end on a good point, I remember driving through what's called the oil center in Lafayette, Louisiana. It still exists. But it was empty. I mean, I can think of, say, out of 100 businesses that were there when I was in sixth, seventh grade, maybe there were three remaining. It has come back. It's come back because of the passage of time and because individuals and, and organizations, not the government, have decided we're going to have to diversify because of the moving of capital and regulation and climate change stuff. But it took like 30 or 40 years. The only way that can happen is not from government. Mm-hmm. It's from great culture, great people, tremendous perseverance. And some people moving back, you know, from those yeah. days of, of departing, especially for places like Texas and Wyoming in the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about America and freedom is that it doesn't guarantee that things are always good, but it gives you the opportunity to recover. And the more freedom we have, the quicker and better we can recover. That's exactly right. And so we see we, we see that time and again, whenever we are free to do so, we do so. And that's another example of that. Now, I, I wanted to ask you about heritage. Um, you've been here two and a half, three, almost. You're coming up on your third year. Is that right? Coming up on second year. I'll oh, coming up on your second. I'm year. glad I'm wearing so well on you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what it is is I. I've really. I, I, I don't really. I, no, no. It's this. It is that you're coming here and becoming the new president coincided with a big change for me, and so. There's that connection for me, and I, it's not that I assign what seems like a certain amount of time to you being here, but to me being in a different position. And I'm, I was like, oh, my God, it hasn't really been that long. <laughs> now, that's not to say anything bad about my, my new bosses. I want to clarify if any, any of them are listening. Let's move on. What I'd like to know is, was it what you expected in this? 
I'm guessing, let me get word this right. I'm guessing that you took this job because you saw potential in heritage helping change the country in a way that you thought appropriate, that there was a synergy there. Having been here for almost two years, has that potential, and seeing what heritage can do, has the potential in your mind for heritage to change the world grown or become smaller? Bottom line up front, a resounding yes. I took this job for three reasons, gratitude, gratitude to heritage, gratitude to the country that I think heritage disproportionately honors and cultivates the principles of. Secondly, to your point, I took it because of potential. That is to say, as you said earlier, heritage has done great work, but I think if, you're, if you've done great work, then you can do even greater work in the future. And then the third was duty. And, and I don't mean that in the negative connotation. I had been spending the last several months mostly traveling in Texas, trying to, to convince, persuade, maybe cajole some friends, even though the election didn't go the way we wanted, and not just one particular office, but several, we can't give up on America. And I told them, dig a little bit deeper. We didn't want to leave Texas. I mean, why would you want to leave Texas for the swamp? But the duty that we felt was, well, it's heritage, great gratitude to heritage, great people at heritage, great potential. So let's let's come up here and do it. And and what I have seen universally, categorically, is that our colleagues at heritage and the, the folks who are adjacent to us, organizations, other individuals, they love this country. They know the country is sick. The patient is sick. They have a plan for getting the, the, the patient better, but it's not like just giving the, the patient some pills and, and you know, you'll get a little bit better, but you're going to be taking pills the rest of your life. We want to fix it. Mm-hmm. Like we want the patient to leave the hospital <laughs> right. and live many more decades. And You'll never get a job with Big Pharma with that attitude. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I will never be seeking one. <laughs> there are certain people in D.C. I learned. In fact, a couple of them have told me, you know, Roberts, uh, we're not going to invite you to the cocktail parties. And I went home and my wife said, yes. So good. Why was it going anyway? Yeah. Another badge of honor. All right. We're sort of jumping around a little bit here, but I want to get into energy security issues, some foreign policy type stuff. We've talked a bit about... Um, we, we didn't we didn't say these words exactly. So if, if, if I'm putting words in your mouth, by all means, correct me. Um, but I think that we generally agree that the private sector does energy better than government. 100%. And, and a part in the energy business is not just producing energy, but distributing it and also the trade of energy. One of the outcomes of that has been trade with China and Russia and dependence on them. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile knowing that the private sector does this better, but maybe there is a role for government in preventing those things from happening? That's, I'd like to hear your thoughts just on, on that, that reconciliation. Yeah, great question. And you and I not only have had a lot of conversations about this, you've helped me sharpen my thinking on this. And so generally, well, almost categorically, although there will be one category of exception, um, that's true. Private, we ought to trust private businesses to make the best decisions. But in this case, what has happened with the largest oil and gas producers that are headquartered in the United States, I'm not talking about the independent producers who are the good guys, is that like almost in every other industry, 
the biggest corporations have become not free market in their thinking, but corporatist in their thinking. They expect and demand and spend millions lobbying for special favors. And there has been, and I know I might sound a little tinfoil hat in saying this, but it's the gospel truth. There has been a collusion between those big corporations, ExxonMobil, as one example, the corporation that my grandfather worked for, my father-in-law did. They were good guys then, the corporations. A collusion between them and big government. And that, ironically, even though it's against the interest of the everyday American, has directly and indirectly led to really poor decisions about where we even conduct the exploration for mm -hmm. hydrocarbons. And they're so aggressive about this that even during the most friendly administration to hydrocarbon exploration, the last one, the Trump administration, the big guys were trying to crowd out the small guys. Mm -hmm. And while in some cases it wouldn't be totally accurate to call it corporate welfare, in a few cases it is. And therefore, on those grounds, but also on the grounds, as you and I have discussed, on a national security exception, we shouldn't be doing any business with the Chinese Communist mm -hmm. Party. You and I grew up when it was just unconscionable to think about an American company doing business with the Soviet Union. We can do that. We can avoid doing business with this enemy, and we can still have a free market. In fact, I would argue we'll have an even freer market mm -hmm. because part of that will be eroding what really isn't driven by free market principles, but almost by oligarchical principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the areas um, that I made a big mistake historically is with Russia and uranium. I Look, I never trusted the Russians as far as I could throw them. Uh, Trust me, I, I didn't. I have no doubt. <laughs> However, I fell into the same trap that many have fallen in, probably myself with China, too. Oh, I was there, but, by the way. I, I, yeah. you know, so I was in that trap with you. And when it, when it came to Russia and uranium, I was arguing years ago, we should— why shouldn't we have access to cheap Russian uranium? It's not like they're going to invade Ukraine or something. <laughs> no, I didn't say those exact words, thankfully. Um, but that was the essence of what I was sure. saying, that I was arguing. And boy, was I wrong. And um, I'm glad to say it's not, only, uh, it's not only me and people like me who are wrong about that that put us in the condition we are in today. There's a whole bevy of uranium policy that put us in the position we are in today. And I'm happy to say I was against those. Like, I got those right. It's a, I, <laughs> you got a heck of a batting average. You're, you're in good shape. But I got this Russian thing wrong. And um, and now, now um, well, you, we've had talk. We, we, you know where I stand on on free trade. You know, I'm, I'm a free trader generally. That's your or, reputation. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe more than general. Um, but even I'm like, ban Russian uranium. And because I think that falls squarely into that um, that national security exemption, and 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 I get the China thing, like I I get all that. Yeah, and related to this is uh, you know we've we've covered uranium. I was talking about hydrocarbons as well, but also rare earth minerals. Yeah, and 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 my free trade dogmatism, if you will. And I don't say that disrespectfully to people who themselves would identify as a, a, a free market or free trade dogmatist. Mine began to dissipate a little bit when I took a tour of a rare earth minerals mine in northeastern Wyoming. And I realized even then, this was years ago, they were having a hard time getting a permit. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading about it. And I realized, oh, my gosh, 
I, I mean, I'm a free trader. I, I've been saying, well, just go get them wherever you can. That may, in our lifetime, come home to really bite us. Mm-hmm. And it's, an, I think, an excellent example. Of that. I mean, that particular mine, I've got no financial interest in it, but that particular mine, that, that regulation, that permitting needs to have been completed years ago mm-hmm. in order to start conducting the, the, the mining there because we don't have a huge amount of sources of this to begin with. So in every aspect of energy policy, there's been a little bit of reorientation on the political right acknowledging the national security problem we have now, especially with the Chinese, to a lesser extent the Russians. It doesn't mean that we're forsaking the entire project of the free market, the principles of the free market. I've begun to articulate to actually think it it makes them purer because when you're saying this, you're, you're criticizing the Chinese Communist Party, you are unfortunately also criticizing some American headquartered companies who ought to have the virtue as they're assigning where they do their business, not to do business there. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing at Heritage, being very careful in how we say this, is to make it less popular for American companies to do business, whether in this particular industry with the Chinese Communist Party or in others. I said about me being free trade, and you said that's, that's your reputation. I can say without any hesitation, the interactions I've had with you on this issue, we've had discussions about tech, what, whatever it is where I'm, you know, I as a, as um, whatever role I have at the Heritage Foundation, um, you've always given me the, the time of day to hear me out. And I have, I've never once in any of those conversations, I think you are unfairly characterized sometimes by those who might want to criticize Heritage. I know that you, I'm not, I'm not uh, surprising you with, with that. This is not a newsflash. <laughs> Um, Nor does that bother me. Right. <laughs> Didn't figure it did. Um, I've never once felt like we didn't agree on like what the objective is. And there might have been some difference in, agree, uh, in a, a difference of opinion on certain things. But I've never once as an employee of the Heritage Foundation of which you lead as being felt like I was belittled or not listened to or anything like that. And I'm still here because. Well, not that, not that I was threatening to leave. That sounded, you know, I'm still here, happily here, because I'm down with what you're selling. Like, I'm buying what you're selling. And I know that you're, you've, not giving up, you've not given up principles of free trade or the traditional principles that have defined conservatism. You've not given them up. And you've never made me feel like you're, the, the policy pursuits that may be different today at Heritage than what they were 10 years ago aren't about changing principles. It's about... Where are we today, and what do we need to do, and how do? We, and that's that. That was what I tried to get to with my introduction of you. You're mm. like, let's question ourselves. Let's because we need to save this country, and I'm just saying that is, um, as someone who is known as a free marketer, sometimes even fundamentalist, which I reject. I I believe in free markets as much as anyone does, but actual free markets, not ones that are controlled yeah, by. We're in a hundred percent agreement about the that. government. Well, you're very, you're very kind in your comments, and that's that's part of our heritage culture, right? That we're not going to go out and solicit support of any kind without, on a particular position, speaking with a single voice. Because if, in fact, we want to influence the outcome of policy, how can you do that if you're you're you have multiple positions? Right. And and so the the process for that internally is we have to have a lot of conversations, and it is just impossible, even in a public policy organization where we all have the same worldview for us to agree internally on 100% of, of everything. Yeah. 
Therefore, the implementation of that, like the culture of that, is that not only should the discourse be civil, but it should be almost joyful. Yeah. That and, and that's what you and I struck the very first conversation we had, and that's been my experience here. I, I love a lot of aspects of my job. One of the most time-consuming is this process of figuring out I mean, being radically candid with ourselves, what's changed about America? Mm -hmm. what's, what are the different circumstances now in 2023 than 10, 20, 40 years ago? We don't have the power to change the principles. Mm -hmm. They're timeless. Right. We didn't come up with them. Right. We, we just have the privilege and duty of cultivating them. It's the application of those principles yeah. to the particular circumstances that does generate some judgment calls. Yeah. And as a leader, I'm always a lot more comfortable making those judgment calls when we've had this process internally, yeah. even though I know not everyone's going to agree. If we all put our hand on the touchstone and say, that's the position, let's go get it. Man, we are at the top of our game. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you that you bring to the table and being the president of the organization, it has permeated throughout it, though not as much as perhaps I wish it would, which is this idea of radical candor, and the ability to debate things. I love debating. Like, I love I've noticed it. that. <laughs> and I'm cool with, like, I'm, I'm, well, I never think I lost. <laughs> but I'm cool. <laughs> I am perfectly happy for to not have come, for, for, for someone to have decided today wasn't your day. I mean, within reason. But Yeah, if you get a bunch <laughs> of those in a row, that's right. not good. Right. But you get what I'm saying. I do. And um, I was the only conservative <laughs> on a history faculty. I had a lot of losing days. Yeah. And and um, and some people still have some thin skin. But we're so much better at engaging on those things. So. Which makes us better on the outside. Yeah. Because on the outside, what we're doing mostly is three things, right? We're communicating to our friends in the media, which is a way of communicating to the broader audience. We exist to coach our elected official friends and even not friends, not just how to vote, but how to communicate on these issues. So if we've had these conversations internally looking at every aspect and we can anticipate what the challenges will be, we're even better. And the third is we have a lot of activists I and mean, people who listen to this show, people all over the country and the world. They want to know the conversations we're having so they can be really crisp when they're trying to persuade yeah. their friends. If we're not doing our jobs every day inside this building— then we're not going to do our jobs outside the building. Yeah, that's one of the most important things I think that we can do is educate the people who look to us to understand how to articulate issues, even how to not how to think about them, but how how to how they how principles apply to the current issues of the day. And that's a really important thing that we do. Now we're coming up to the end. There's an issue that I said we were going to talk about, we haven't talked about, but I am dying to hear how you think about about conservation, public access. You know, I, a lot of people don't realize, I don't think. The role that public access, hunting and fishing, has had in establishing the culture of the United States. People like Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, these guys were hunters. They were statesmen. They were leaders, and uh, and they believe they really believe that this land is your land. This land is our land. And, I did not expect and, you to be <laughs> quoting Guthrie song, <laughs> but I love it. You know. Um, Quoted Jody Mitchell one day on here on this here podcast. <laughs> it, appropriately so, I might add. Coming back to though where I was. So I, I so having access to America for hunting and fishing and outdoor recreation is really important. Yet we see how government screws things up all the time 
And I had, um, you know, we were talking earlier about how views have changed. I, if you would have talked to me when I was 25, I would been like, privatize everything. And I'm not quite there anymore. I feel like there is a role for public land, public access, protecting public access. But at the same time, as we started this conversation, that then subjects those lands to the rules and regulations of the protector. Um, so sort of that, get your views on that. And then also, how does it work in Texas? What's the tex Texas experience? Because there they they might have asked me when I was 25, and they were like, would Spencer private? Okay, privatize everything. And how, think, how does public access work there? I think the 25-year-old Jack Spencer would have really liked the Texas system <laughs> because there's a lot less public access in Texas. In fact, very little on federal land because there's so little federal land in Texas. A lot of state land and some county land. And, and public access is still available enough to hunt and to fish, but it is limited enough there to the, to the larger point of sort of the evolution that I think both you and I have, have gone through since our 25-year-old selves, that you're seeing a diminishing number or percentage of the population that is hunting and fishing. And that's, that's a problem to the larger cultural issue, right? So I would encourage the state of Texas to find opportunities in total concert, total concert with private landowners, mm -hmm. To, to develop some recreation opportunities. That's, I don't think the federal government has to be involved one iota. In Wyoming, it, the, the opposite's uh, true in terms of the percentage of, of the state that is federal land. It's a huge percentage. As I mentioned in Teton County, 97%. But public access can still be a problem because the government mismanages it. Mm -hmm. Like the most reliable access you can get to some rivers, just thinking about being a fisherman, is actually on the Indian reservation, ironically, because the permit system, believe it or not, is so streamlined. Mm -hmm. And also with private landowners. And mm -hmm. I remember um, a mule deer that I took last year in Lander up on Lander. How big was it? Uh, eight point. All right. Yeah. Was, That's good for mule deer. Yep, it is actually. Um, and it was great. I was with my oldest daughter and we, unlike hunting in the swamps of Louisiana, which I grew up doing, sitting, sitting and sitting. <laughs> We tracked that thing. We walked miles and miles and miles. It's glorious. But, you know, that was on private land that uh, we paid access for. And mm -hmm. by paying for access, it wasn't expensive. You know, yeah. even even a working class person could afford it. I love the Wyoming system, which seems to balance the interests. Mm -hmm. And it's a system that if we get a friendly administration in the White House soon, I think the state's going to take some action and, and mm -hmm. start claiming some of the federal land for the people of Wyoming. And I like that policy, too. Yeah, that's that's where I sort of come down on it. I want this stuff to go to the states as much as it can, as much as it can. And then allow the states to to manage it, especially with why. I mean, states have done a great job managing wildlife. What that's another thing people don't realize is the Virginia does a great job, uh, the unbelievable job that this country's state level wildlife managers have done in bringing back all of these species. Um, it, what they also didn't realize is that maintaining control over certain species is a huge lever of control for the federal government. No, like the, the gray wolf and grizzly bear, these things, there are plenty of in many regions, but the government, does, it becomes a really controversial issue. These, these wildlife conservation issues. Yeah, that, that'll get you in a bar fight in Wyoming <laughs> <laughs> with the wolf and the grizzly bear. Uh -huh. Yeah. And you, you have the, the, the ranchers who they don't like them. And yeah, it, it's a it's a fascinating world. If um, I've, I've been making a joke lately, I do nuclear energy a lot, and I've been making a joke that um, I used to do nuclear or I do nuclear energy. I used to do it because no one liked it, so it was fun. Like I was the nuclear guy, and you would fight with people. But now everyone likes nuclear energy, so I think I'm going to become the coal guy. 
but maybe I'll become the the grizzly and gray wolf guy. Or, you know, all of that would suit your contrarian nature. So I encourage you to do all of the above. And, and, and here at Heritage, you will always have a home. I certainly appreciate that. Now, we got we to gotta close this down. I need to ask one quick question, though, because I know that people are interested in it. We're engaged in this project called 2025, and there's been a, a lot of media interest recently in the energy and environment piece of that. Could you tell us just real quick, what is Project 2025 and what do you hope to achieve with it? It involves every policy issue, but I'll home in on energy. Let's eliminate the Department of Energy. (laughs) And in the process of doing that, let's attract several thousand people into the database so that good men and women can come to D.C. for a spell, tithe to this republic, help us reclaim this country. You can go to project2025.org to read the policies and also submit your resumes. Awesome. Sounds good. Now, to close up, we're really going to do it now. How can people find you? They want to follow Dr. Kevin Roberts more closely. Do you have social media and stuff like that? I have one. So against your better judgment, if you want to follow me, go to Kevin Roberts TX on Twitter. All right. And for those of you who are not on Twitter or X, whatever the heck it's called, (laughs) you're smart. But uh, you can also find me on Heritage.org. And you have a podcast, your own podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show. Thank you. I do that once a week, The Kevin Roberts Show. We have guests from across the center-right spectrum and have conversations like this. And you apparently have a book coming up at some point. We do. Uh, if, if I get this thing done by November, I'm told that it will might be out by the middle part of next year. That's Why awesome. Why we fight taking back America. Maybe if you have time, you could come back and we can talk about your book. I would love to. I need to have you on The Kevin Roberts Show. You, you name the time and I'll be there. Dr. Roberts, I want to thank you a ton. This has been great. John, thank you. Thank you, thank you. For making this an awesome production. And thank you to all the listeners who took time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. I I just, I can't thank everyone enough. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out. Email us, Dr. Roberts, John. Thank you both so much. Y'all, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack.